You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it is great to see you this morning. You need to flip to 1 Peter. Uh, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. And you also need to put a thumb in or something to Mark Matthew 27. We're going to be in both of those places. So um, if you'll get both of those handy, that would serve you. Um, we need to start um, this morning by covering just a little bit of family business. And so um, you're going to have to bear with me for about five minutes as we get started here. A couple things I need to, to make sure you know. One is uh, we've got like four or five weeks left in 2011. Does that not just sound crazy to even hear that? And so with that, though, I want to, to just take a second to remind you to make sure that you take a look at your 2011 giving. And so you can do that by going to the city and clicking on the giving tab. It'll bring up your 2011, everything um, that, that you've given uh, this year. And, and here's, here's what we're going for in that is I, I tell you this all the time that, that we are not after your money. Um, we are after a gospel heart. And so here, here's what we want you to, as you think about your generosity, here's what we want you, the question that I th- we think would be good for you to ask yourself is when you look at your giving for just say 2011, how you have given to the people around you, does it reflect a heart that is bought into the gospel, that really believes the gospel? Does it reflect that? Does it reflect a heart that, this is a 2 Corinthians um, 8, 9 issue. Does it reflect a heart that knows that Jesus ma- was rich, he made himself poor so that you who were in rags could be rich? Does it reflect a heart that believes that? That in Jesus, you've got everything your soul needs to be satisfied so you don't have to go crazy spending on everything to be satisfied. Does it, does it reflect that? And so that, that's the issue. We're going after a gospel heart. So we would invite you to take a look at that to make sure that um, your 2011 giving reflects a heart that is bought into that, that gospel. Okay, now secondly, I um, need to tell you our Christmas schedule. And so Christmas kind of, um, the whole holiday, that, that whole season kind of falls on some, some days for us that is, uh, makes it a little bit difficult this year. And so um, here, here's the schedule. Christmas Eve, December 24th, we're going to meet. That's a Saturday night. We're going to do a 5 p.m. and a 6.30 p.m. service. And so that's Christmas Eve. We're not going to meet for church on Sunday morning, Christmas Day. Instead, we're going to invite you, if you would like to serve with us, we're going to go down to downtown Fort Worth and serve some meals to some homeless men and women. So we'd invite you to come along with us and be a part of of that with us. So that's Christmas morning. And then um, uh, January 1st, um, we'll be on 9 and 11. I'm sure it's going to be me and like three others of you. Um, so, So we'll be on January 1st. Uh, morning, normal services, 9 and 11. So that's kind of Christmas schedule. And lastly, I want to uh, point out one thing. KC Maddox, um, sitting right over here, preached last week. And I always love just to take a second after um, we have somebody else other than me preach on a Sunday morning um, to say that is a good thing for everyone involved. It's a good thing for you. It's a good thing for um, our other guys on staff that need to develop in their gift of preaching. And it's a good thing for me. So it's good for you. It, I tell you this all the time. That it's our job as preachers to give you weekly reminders of the gospel. And I think what is most beneficial for you is to hear that wrapped in a variety of voices. So you get a little different vocabulary, a little different style, all that to tell you essentially the exact same thing. So that is good for you. I hope you see that as good for you. I see that as good for you. Um, Secondly, it's good for our guys on our staff. Um, The only way you can develop as a preacher is with reps. I I always say this, that uh, my first 200 sermons were so bad, I've been on a crusade to, to destroy all evidence of them. 
And so the only way you can develop from that is by, by reps. And so with that, it is good for our guys to get to develop in their gift of preaching. When we look down the road, we want to send out church planters. And part of that means that we have to develop in the gift of teaching for our guys that are on, on our staff. And lastly, it's great for me. I want to be your pastor, God willing, for the next 30 or 40 years. But to do that means I've got to work at a sustainable pace. And so um, last week, we got a Saturday night to chill out and not have to think about a sermon. Um, so that, it's good for me too. If, if I'm going to do this for the long haul, it's got to be sustainable. And so with that, um, it, it would be one thing if we paraded up here guys that could not preach. Um, but if you were here last week and listened to KC, you know that he brought the house down, right? He, he's really good. He, he's 10 times funnier than I'll ever be, first of all. And so, uh, but he's got an ability to rightly divide the scripture and to be able to speak that in a way that edifies the people who listen. And so, KC, I just want to tell you, thanks for preaching last week and for serving us and for the time you spent on all that. So thank you for that. Okay, we are in 1 Peter. So um, you'll need to get there. 1 Peter um, chapter 2 is where we're going to land. Okay, so we are in part 12 of a set of sermons through 1 Peter, and it's important as we kind of dig into this issue this morning that we kind of set the context of, of where we are. So you're going to need to look at, at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, and we're going to work context here. Now let me just forewarn you on what we're doing this morning. We're in the last section of the second chapter. That's 18 through 25, and it's a rich section of Scripture. I find myself saying this almost every week too. So it's going to take us two weeks to get through it. And so what we're going to spend this week and next week, and here, here's the framework for the next two weeks. Um, this week, I, I'm going to steal a, a, just a metaphor from painting. Okay, so if there was a canvas up here that had this text on it, here's what we're going after this week. Um, I, all I want to do this week is put the background on the canvas. So I have no application for you this morning. Absolutely none. More than I want you to do something today, I want you to see something. That, that's the point. I want you to see something today. If you don't see this, then it doesn't matter what, what Peter is about to say to us. So, so the goal today is to see the background of this text. And then next week, we'll put on the foreground. And we're going to look at these, this command, one of the most difficult that Peter gives in the entire uh, book. Um, th this command that deals with unjust suffering. We'll look at this command specifically and, and how that relates to the practicalities of your life. So, so this week is preparation. Next week is the painful and kind of practical application of, of this text. So with that, here's the context. Look at verse 12 um, of chapter 2. So in light of all that God has done for you, verse 9, he's made he's your chosen people, your royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. In light of all that he has done for you, in light of all that he has accomplished through the cross, through sending his son Jesus to be slaughtered in your place, through that and in light of that, he, he tells you verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So, so what God has done for you and to you, it starts to mean something for your life now. Keep your conduct honorable so that they may, when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter's essentially saying this, in light of what God has done for you, now you live in a way that adorns the gospel, that, that your life should make the gospel look believable. And you hear that? That your life should make the gospel actually look plausible to believe. Your life should do that. Okay, now think about the way that people come uh, to respond in the gospel. This is not the way it happens, okay? It virtually never happens like this. It virtually never happens where a guy is sitting on his couch at midnight on a Saturday night. He's flipping through channels, and he, he comes across a TV preacher, and, and just without any other influence, without anything else, he, he looks at this, and he hears this message being spoken, and he responds in a positive way to that. 
That, that virtually, ne- that's not the way people come to faith. Now, uh, sometimes God will use a TV preacher. I'm not saying that that never happens, but it's not in a vacuum, him just watching a message and then responding. 99.99% of the time, th- this is how it happens for you. You have people that God has strategically placed in your life under the providence of God. They could be a mom, a dad, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor. Maybe it's a youth pastor, a pastor that you've observed their life and it's made the gospel look believable. It's made the gospel actually look like something that, that, that is good. It's, it's right. And, and God uses that and then you hear a gospel message presented and then you respond. But it virtually never happens without looking plausible through a person's life. And this is what Peter is saying, that that your life is meant to adorn the gospel. Your life is meant to make this gospel look believable. To to maybe use a different vocabulary for it, I, I think you could say this to summarize what Peter is saying. That your life, the way that you live your life, it should demand a gospel explanation. It should be so distinctly different. Like the impulses of your heart should be so distinctly different after what God has done for you. That it, it should demand, a, what is wrong with that guy? It should demand that. It should demand a gospel explanation. That you should be living in such a way that only the gospel would make sense of that. That, that there's no natural reason that you would be doing what you're doing. That you're living in such a way that demands a gospel explanation. Now, if you were to ask the question, okay, well, what does that mean? To live in such a way, gospel, what, what is that? What would that practically look like? This is what Peter starts to un- unpack. For the rest of the book, he is showing you what a life that demands a gospel explanation looks like. Last week, um, KC um, worked through verses 13 through 17. One of the things Peter says, the first thing he says, if you want to live a life that demands a gospel explanation, here's the first thing it looks like. Submit to, to your government. Submit. The posture of your heart, the disposition of your heart should be to obey. That should be the disposition. So that affects the way you would speak about government. That that affects the way you would speak about a president, a congress, uh, whoever. It it affects that. There should be a distinctly different way that you would approach that, the disposition of your heart, and the way you submit to that. Um, If you go to chapter 3, we're going to break into this after the first of the year. He's going to say that it, it has a distinct mark on a home that the way a wife would respond to her husband, specifically when he's an unbelieving husband, it's distinctly different. It demands a gospel explanation. The way that a husband serves and lays his life down for his wife demands a gospel explanation. Okay, now in this passage, this is a, it's one of the most difficult in the book. He's gonna apply that same idea, living a life that demands a gospel explanation to unjust suffering. Okay, so, so let's pick it up in verse 18. Peter says this, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only, and this is where it gets tough, not only to the good, that's easy, and to the gentle, that's doable. Not only to them, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Okay, so unjust suffering is the big idea. Okay, that, that's, the, that's the issue that Peter is unpacking here. Okay, now, now unjust suffering is different than suffering that comes your way because you did a stupid thing or you sinned. That is not unjust suffering. That's getting what you deserve, right? And we've all been there. You, you've all had that sort of suffering that has come your way because you did something stupid or you sinned. Okay, that, that, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the sort of suffering that comes not because you did something stupid and you sinned, but because you live in a fallen world around people who are stupid and people who sin. Okay, that's the point. It's that sort of unjust suffering, okay, that, that comes your way by no fault of your own. He's saying that, that that sort of suffering has a unique opportunity in that, embedded into unjust suffering, there is a unique opportunity to display the gospel. 
That there is this God-given gift, even in unjust suffering, that did not come at any fault. There's this God-given gift that, that shows the gospel in bright colors. Okay, to keep going here. He gives an example, verse 20. For what credit is it when you sin, you're, if, when you're sin, you are, are beaten for it and, and you endure? And, and it's a rhetorical question. He's saying there, there's no, there's, no one's impressed by that. When you endure, when you sin, and are, no one's impressed. If your hand gets caught in the cookie jar and you get sent to time out, no one is impressed if you sit there quietly. Okay, if you bear that. No, no one's impressed by that. But, but look at what he goes on to say. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. But when you look at the, you haven't even looked at the cookie jar, your hand hasn't been near the cookie jar, and you get beaten for a pulp because evidently your hand was supposedly in there, and then you get sent to time out and you endure that graciously, humbly, patiently, that's impressive. That's what he's saying. That embedded in unjust suffering is this unique opportunity to show the gospel, to, 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 to give the gospel, to present the gospel. Maybe you could think of it this way, that unjust suffering paints on the canvas back behind your life a dark picture that, that the bright rays of the gospel pop off of. See, without that dark hue on the back, Without that dark hue in the background, you, you would never really see the gospel in such bright colors. But when you put it in front of a black background, it just pops off, off of. See, this is the idea. He's saying that unjust suffering provides that sort of a background for your life that shows the brightness of the gospel in a unique way. Okay, let's, let's keep going here. He's going to take it for a, an interesting turn in verse 21. Okay, we'll come back to those verses, by the way, next week. So verse 21 and beyond. For, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. We're going to camp on that today. Leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and to live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. So I want you to look at that word example, kind of an interesting word. Has this idea of a, a person um, tracing a letter, like, put, putting a, 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 like maybe you could think of it as a, as a teacher, writing a letter. And then putting a piece of paper over that letter and, and looking at a student and say, now trace that. Okay, that, that's what he means by example. He's saying, now, now trace what has happened before you. See, see what's happened there? See what Jesus has done for you? Now trace that. You, you follow his example. And then he gives you kind of a, a description of what following in this example means when he says so that you might follow in his steps. It's as if maybe like you could think of it as Christ, your big brother, his suffering, like the footprints he's put in the sand in front of you. Now you're to walk, you're, you're to put your feet in those footprints that have come before you. Okay, now, now here's going to be the question that we're going to try to unpack today. Is when it says, okay, Christ suffered, that, that he was reviled. The, the question is, what does that mean? Okay, so we, we, we understand that he's an example. We've got these footprints to kind of follow. But, but what, what, what is in the prints? Like what, what, what sort of steps did he take? What did his suffering, what did his reviling look like? like it's easy to read First Peter and see those words and read right past them. So we're going to need to go to Matthew 27. And I want to give you the video if you will, like the video, the, the, the script that's behind that word suffering and that word reviling in 1 Peter. So, so let's go back to Matthew chapter 27. So flip back there. And we're going to start in verse 24. 
Okay, this is to give you a script, like a video, that the, what, the picture that's behind what, what it means when it says he suffered unjustly. So that when it says, this is your example, you, you'll know what's coming for you. When, when it says that this is what you were called to, that you'll see what Jesus suffered and now what you're following. Okay, so Matthew 27. Answering the question, what, what is suffering? What is this reviling that he took? What, what does that mean? I'm going to give you nine characteristics out of um, Matthew 27. So, so nine things out of Matthew that, that shows you what suffering, reviling, what, what those things mean. Starting in verse 24, Matthew 27. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Verse 25. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Verse 26. Then he released for them Barabbas and having, and then it says this, scourged Jesus. Here's the first thing. Jesus was scourged. Now, I don't know when you hear that word, what, what sort of a thing comes up in you. Like if, if that word just sends like a tremor down your spine. But if you were a first century man and you heard a Roman governor tell his troops to take you out and scourge you, your knees would have just buckled. I, it, it's really easy to read that in Matthew and think, okay, well, he was just scourged. Okay, you, you were never just scourged. Like you were just told to go to timeout. You were just told to shut up. You were just slapped in the face. You were just thrown in prison, but you were never just scourged, right? That's not even an option. Okay, so, so track with me on what scourging means. If, if you've seen the passion of the Christ, you, you've got maybe some vivid imagery in your head that goes along with this. A man was, was stripped down to his waist, so, so the top of his body was exposed, and he was tied to a pole or a pedestal. And then they would take a whip that had um, loose ends at the, the end of it, strands at the end, that would have sewn into those strands lead balls for bruising and all sorts of shrapnel, iron, bone, whatever, whatever they could find that would be shrapnel. And they would sew all that into that whip. So you've got a guy that has an exposed upper half of his body, and, and now you've got a whip that when it hits you, part of it is bruising, and the other part is attaching itself to you. So that now when you rip that whip back, it literally just shreds your back. Like your flesh is coming out with it. That this is scourging. Okay, now um, the, the Jews, they had a, a law that you could not hit a man 39 times. The, the Romans were not that generous. They, they had no law on limits of this thing. Okay, so, so are you seeing the picture here? You, you've got a man, Jesus, who is tied to a pole and you've got a whip that is hitting him that is ripping and shredding his back, his chest, his legs. Um, Eusebius was an early church historian. Here's what he said about this. He said the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles and bowels were open to exposure. Many died of these floggings before they could ever be crucified. Do you see what he's saying? That, that literally your, your, your organs are exposed. Another guy said that um, virtually every time a man was, was scourged, his spinal column would be exposed. So do you see the picture? This isn't just scourging. You're never just scourged. When you're scourged, your, your chest, your back, your legs are ripped to shreds. Your organs are exposed. Your spinal column is exposed. That's scourging. Okay, now listen to this. And all of that was unjust suffering. All of it. Okay, let's keep going here. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governors took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Verse 28, and they stripped him. You see that? Jesus was stripped. Um, I was in the seventh grade and it was recess. Now, you know the story can never be good after that introduction, right? 
Seventh grade in recess, never a good story. So I'm in a mob of people, and we're waiting for uh, the bell to ring. And in that mob, I hear uh, the whispers start of watch this, and the little stirring start to happen. And I knew, like, reflexively what to do when I heard a watch this. I instantly grabbed for my pants. Okay, that's what I did. And so, um, so, so the watch this, the stirrings happen, and I see a person dart out of this mob, and uh, I, I watch him grab a, a boy's shorts and pull those shorts down. The only problem was he got more than shorts. Okay, now I have no idea why a seventh grader thinks that's funny. You know, I mean, only a seventh grader would think that's funny. That's ridiculous. I would be terrified if that happened in this room. Okay, so, so here... So now, now here, here's the, the image that I have just embedded in my head is looking at his face and seeing in his eyes a look of complete humiliation. Now, can you read that into this story? That, that Roman soldiers don't strip a man um, naked for the fun of it. They do it for the humiliation of it. And, and listen to this. All of it unjust. Okay, it, it keeps going here. Verse 28, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. So Jesus was put in a scarlet robe. Okay, can you see the scene? Like, wh why would they put a robe on a, on a man's back? Why, why would they put it on Jesus? A robe or something that kings would wear. And, and so it's, it's this mockery that's starting here. It, it's we're going to dress him up as a king so, so we can mock him. But it's ironic that I, I think the soldiers don't know all that they're symbolizing and putting a scarlet, a red robe on his back. You've got these echoes of, of Isaiah 118. Do you, do you remember Isaiah 118? That although your sin is like, what, scarlet or crimson, God's going to make it white as snow. You remember that? So, so actually, I think the Roman soldiers are actually giving us something more than they even knew. That, that Jesus is literally wrapping our sin, scarlet sins, around him, right? So, so you've got them um, putting a robe around him, and then it goes on, though. Verse 29. And twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. So Jesus was given a crown of thorns. Okay, so what, what's the, the thing with the crown of thorns? Um, thorn, or a crown what was given for a person in authority. So this would be a thing that a king would wear. This would be a thing that a military general, after a good battle, victory, would come back and as he's paraded around, that he would wear. So it's a sign of authority. So it's this, these soldiers that are openly mocking Jesus, putting, putting this crown on him as a way of mocking what, what people are saying that he is. But, you know, in actuality, I think there's even more to it than they know. That, that, you know, he, they've got this crown of thorns that have been smashed down onto his head. But do you remember what thorns represent in Genesis 3? That, that thorns are um, part of the curse. Do you remember that? that, that what, what's the part of the curse of the ground? Thorns and thistles would be brought forth. That, that actually that the Roman soldiers are doing more than they know. That by putting this crown of thorns on his head, they're actually showing us what Jesus is doing for us. That he is taking our curse on himself. Do, do you see that? So, so it's this open mockery. And can I just say this again? All of it unjust is being done to Jesus. And then it keeps going, though. And twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and they um, put a reed in his right hand. So Jesus was given this scepter or this reed. It was a symbol of power. It's something that a king or a, or a prince would have. It's this, it's this picture of, of, of their power, of their authority. And, and so this, this mockery continues. They're dressing him up like a king. And I, I think this, too, is ironic that, um, that the one they're giving the scepter to is actually the one that will hold it for all eternity, right? Isn't that ironic? 
Um, so let's keep going here. So they put it in his right hand, given the scepter, given this reed. And then it says, and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hell, king of the Jews. So Jesus was bowed down to and just openly mocked. So, so you've got this whole dress up scene that is happening. That they're putting the robe on him. They put the crown of thorns on him. They give him the reed or the scepter. And, and then they, they, they take a step back. They kneel down before him, bow down before him and, and, and salute him as king. And ironically, Ironically, this is a foreshadowing of what Philippians 2 tells us every man, every woman will do as we bow the knee to King Jesus. Every tongue will confess that this is coming for all men and women. They didn't know that this was going to be a repeat scene in just a few short years for them, right? Just open mockery. Can you see it though? Can you see the open, just disregard and mock? Can you see the unjust suffering that is happening here? Can you see what Jesus is going through here? Let's keep rolling. Verse 30. And then it says, and they spit on him. So Jesus was spit on. Okay, now, um, you, you don't just need to, to read those words. You, you need to see that. Can, can you close your eyes and just picture that for a second? Can you let your imagination go there? That this is Jesus, that the king of the universe being spit on? Can, can you see that? L listen to Charles Spurgeon in language that only he could use just to describe this whole scene. He said this, I do not know how you feel in listening to me. But while I am speaking, I feel as if language ought scarcely to touch such a theme as this. It is too feeble for its task. I want you to get beyond my words, if you can, and, and for yourselves, meditate upon the fact that he who covers the heavens with blackness, he, he did not cover his own face. And he who binds up the universe, yet, yet he allowed himself to be bound and blindfolded by the men he himself had made. He whose face is at the brightness of the sun that shines in its strength was once spit upon. Surely we, and I love this, surely we shall need faith in heaven to believe this wondrous fact. Can it be true that the glorious son of God was jeered at and jested at? I have often heard that there is no need for faith in heaven, but I would rather judge that we shall all need and want as much faith to believe that these things were ever done as the patriarchs had to believe that they would be done. How shall I sit down and gaze upon him and think that his dear face was once profaned with spit? When all heaven shall lie prostrate at his feet in awful silence of adoration, will it seem possible that once he was mocked? When angels and principalities and powers shall be roused to rapture of harmonious music in his praise, will it seem possible that once the most abject of men plucked out his hair? Will it not appear incredible that those sacred hands were once nailed to a cross and that those cheeks, which are as a bed of spices, as sweet as flowers, should have been battered and bruised? We shall be quite certain of the fact, and yet we shall never cease to wonder that his side was gashed and his face was spit upon. The sin of man in this instance will always amaze us. How could you commit this crime? Oh, you sons of men, how could you treat such a one with such cruel scorn? Oh, you brazen thing called sin, you have a demon's heart. Hell burns within you. Why? How, how, how could you not spit upon earthly splendors? Why, why, not, why heaven be your scorn? Or if heaven, why not spit on angels? Was there no place for your spit but his face? His face, woe is me, his face. Should such loveliness receive such shame as this? I wish that man 
had never been created or that being created, he had been swept into nothingness rather than have lived to commit such a horror. He was spit upon. Can you, can you see that? Just the degrading nature of that. And listen to this. All of it, unjust suffering. Okay, let, let's keep going here. It says, and they spit on him and they took the reed or the scepter, the stick that they had given him, and they struck him in the head. So Jesus was struck. Okay, now it's really important when you read a word like that, like he was struck, that, that you don't just read that word, but that word has a soundtrack to it. Do you, do you know that? That when a group of men maul another guy, when they, when they take a stick and they start beating a guy with it, that has sounds that go with it, horrific sounds that go with it. Do you have the soundtrack going there? I mean, there's a soundtrack. That, that sounds like something. It says he was struck. And, and number nine, Jesus was crucified. Look at verse 31. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. Verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And something that was, something that, that was like an act of generosity will give him a little bit of wine to help dull the pain. I think the, probably the opposite of true. When you have gall mixed with wine, it makes it undrinkable. It makes it unbearable to drink. It ruins it. Right? And so, so rather than being an act of generosity, it was cruelty put on cruelty. Um, let's go to verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the char- this charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others and he cannot save himself. And isn't it ironic that they're exactly right? That that actually to save others, he can't save himself. In their mind, their thought implies that if he would just come down from the cross, that he would gain a following. But, but Jesus knew to gain a following, to actually save a people, to redeem and rescue a people, he had to stay on the cross. And, and then look how it ends. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. So see, when you, when you read the words in 1 Peter, when you, when you come across a simple word like he suffered or, or he was reviled at, when you come across that word, th- this is what that means. That, that he was scourged, that he was publicly humiliated, that he was crucified. See, that, that, that's, the, that's the, the video behind those words of his unjust suffering. Okay, now, now flip back over to 1 Peter, and I want to show you, and we'll kind of end with this, his response to that unjust suffering. How Jesus responded to all of that cruelty that came his way by no fault of his own. So, so back into 1 Peter, starting in verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 22, it says this. It says, he committed no sin, neither was defeat, uh, deceit found in his mouth. Do you see that in verse 22? So, so Jesus committed no sin in the way he responded to his suffering. N- no sin. Isn't this amazing that, that in response to his sin, um, it, there, there was, or in, in response to that suffering, there was no sin. Okay, so, so think about your life and how so often, often suffering becomes the occasion for you to sin. And I'll just give you a quick illustration of that. Do you remember the last time you had a bad headache? Do you remember that? Now now think about your actions in bad headache day. 
See, here's what probably happened for you. That probably became an occasion for you to sin. It probably became an occasion for you to be impatient, to, to not be gracious to people. See, now think about when, when you've just laid down, you, you've got into a dark room, maybe it's your bedroom, you've turned the lights out just to try to, to get some, 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 a little bit of comfort from this thing. And then your kid busts in the room, turns on the light, screams. Now, how do you respond to that? See, for me, that's an occasion to kill somebody. But, but you see, Jesus, there, there's no sin in that moment. That in his unjust suffering, it wasn't an occasion for him to fly off the handle. It wasn't an occasion for impatience. It wasn't an occasion to be ungracious to people, unkind to people. It wasn't an occasion for that. In his suffering, unjust suffering, it was not an occasion for sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He wasn't going to lie his way out of the trouble. Okay, and then it explains what, what no sin looks like. In verse 23, it says this, when he was reviled, he, he did not re, uh, revile in return. So Jesus, in response to his suffering, he didn't sin, which means that, that when he was reviled against, he did not revile in return. He, he didn't return the insult. Now, now, how does that register with you when you think about that? Re returning the insult. I mean, I'm looking at that thinking, Gee, I mean, you've got to do something there. J Jesus, you better start saying something. You better start, but, but he says nothing. In, in the midst of scourging, in the midst of false accusations, not a word. That, well, I think one of the most amazing um, couple of verses in, in Matthew 27 is in um, 12, 13, and 14, where it says that, um, that the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they were just throwing these false accusations his way, just, I mean, belittling, I mean, oh, terrible stuff. And Pilate looks at him and is like, are you not going to say something here? What is wrong? Say something. You can't just say, not a word. And it says that Pilate was greatly amazed at that. And do you know why he was greatly amazed? Because he knows that in the human heart that, that we have all hired ourselves to be our own little personal reputation protectors. I mean, we take that job really seriously, don't we? Think about the last time you, you knew your name was roughed up. Think about what happened in that moment when you knew somebody kind of talked back behind you a little bit. And it was probably a partial truth, by the way. And, and they're they just talking behind you a little bit. Do you, you know that moment where it just rises up in you that somebody's dying for that? Like that, that is not gonna go, that, that's not going to be left unchallenged. I mean, you've got this little, I think Casey used it last week, this little defense lawyer that kind of rises up in you. I mean, do, do you know that moment? And for Jesus, none of it. No, no reviling back, no, no insult back. And it says Pilate was greatly amazed. There's just something amazing about when a person doesn't have to be on the crusade to, to protect their own reputation. That there's something abnormal about that. There's something different about that. There's something that, that you would stand back and say, that, that, there, that demands an explanation bigger than, you see that? No, no, no reviling in return, but, but it goes on. He says this, verse 23, that when he suffered, he did not threaten. Okay, so, so he's mocked, he's spit on, he's scourged, false accusation, threatened, oh, oh, never, never threatened in return. See, if, if I'm looking at that and I am Jesus, I'm like the sovereign king of the, like I'm the one that is going to judge everyone at the end of this thing, and I'm being nailed to a cross, I'm going to let them know who they're nailing to a cross. I'm going to know, I'm going to let, make sure they know, I'm, they're going to hear the threats of what's coming down the pike for them. But isn't it amazing that, that Jesus never once threatens, but actually prays for them? Is that not unbelievable? I mean, put yourself in that. Is that not unbelievable that that happens? 
I mean, this is the Isaiah 53 picture of like a lamb to the, to the slaughter never opens his mouth. And do you remember the, the response of the centurion at the end of that? He watches all the mocking, all the score, all of that, and, and never one threat back from Jesus. Do you remember what he says at the end? Sure, he's amazed. Surely this is the son of God. Sure, it is. It, it's got to be. I, that, that no threatening in return, no sin and all this unjust suffering did something in the centurion's heart to melt all of his resistance toward Jesus. So, so he committed no sin. Then look at the, the rest of verse 23 there. It says this. But, but rather than, than committing sin, this is what he did on the positive side. He continued entrusting himself to, to, to him, to God, who, who judges justly. So, so rather than committing sin, he, he puts it in the court of God and he trusts, he, he entrusts the whole situation to God, a just judge. You see that? See, when I look at this passage, there's the justice streak in me that starts screaming. I don't know if you had the justice streak start screaming when you just, we read through that. Like the justice streak in me says, Jesus, punch back. Will you please punch back? They deserve it. Jesus, I mean, somebody needs to die here, Jesus. We'll start with the religious leader and, and the Pharisees. Let's just start there and then we'll start making our way down the rest of the list. Somebody, somebody's got to pay for that. And isn't it amazing that Jesus says, you know what? I'm not going to be the one that deals that out. I, I'm going to entrust the scourging the mocking, I'm going to address the false accusations, I'm going to entrust all of that, and I'm going to put that in the courts of God who judges justly. I'm going to let him sort through all the details of what justice looks like here. So I'm going to trust this into God's court, and I'm going to trust his wisdom and his justice and his hatred against sin and his compassion and his mercy to all kind of come together and give the proper kind of response to this. But it's not my job to do it. I'm going to entrust that to God. Now, now think about how different that is to how, how we would endure unjust suffering. He, he entrusts himself to the courts of God. And then lastly, look at verse 24. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. In his suffering, Jesus bore our sin. He, he bore our sin. This is massive gospel reality coming down the pike here for us. This kind of brings out imagery from the Old Testament sacrificial system. Where See this imagery, Leviticus chapter 4, where um, the priest would get a, a perfect animal. And the priest would lay his hand on the animal's head and he would confess to God the sins of the people. So he's got an animal, perfect animal before him, hands on his head as he's confessing to God the sins of the people. And then there's this picture of the burden of sin, the guilt of sin, the punishment of sin, the, the penalty of sin, which is death, being transferred from the people onto this innocent animal as the, innocent, as the animal is killed. Innocent animal is killed in the place of the guilty people. Do you see it? That, that's the picture that's behind this. So when it says that Jesus bore our sin in his body on the cross, it's saying that the, our penalty, the penalty for your sin, the penalty for my sin, the penalty that you deserve, the judgment that you deserve, that the curse of sin, that, that that penalty that you deserve has now been transferred onto this innocent one, this innocent son of God, this sinless son of God. Now, now he gets all of that and you get to go free. So, so he gets death and you get life. He, he gets punishment and you get the affection of God. Did you see that? that? That's what it's saying. He bore our sin in his body on the tree. It is saying that the sinless son of God, he gets the anger, we get the affection. His sinlessness, 
It's exchanged for our sinfulness. Okay, this is what's happening. He has paid the penalty for your sin. This is what it means when it says he bore your sin on the cross. Do you remember the scarlet robe? That, that, that your sin was wrapped onto him and, and now you're clean. Do you remember the thorns? He has taken the curse of your sin and he has borne that. The penalty for your sin and he has borne that. Did you see that? You see that this is massive gospel truth that Jesus on the cross stood in your place and absorbed the wrath of God on your behalf. That the God is angry with sin. He hates sin. He, he's got wrath stored up to sin. But rather than giving it to you, he put it all, stacked it all on Jesus so you get his affection. This is what he's saying. He bore your sin in his body on the tree. See, when you think about the suffering of Jesus, a lot of people will camp on the side of the pain, like the physical pain. But all of the physical pain, that, that's just a picture of the spiritual reality that's going on. And the climax of the spiritual reality that's going on on the cross is when Jesus looks at his father and says, why have you forsaken me? When the father literally turns his face away from his son. And do you know why he did that? So, so that now all of his sons and daughters, those who trust and treasure Jesus, so now that he can look at his sons and daughters and turn his face toward you. So, so he forsakes his son so he can forgive you, so he can reconcile you, so he can redeem you, so he can adopt you, so he can justify you. Okay, that, that's the picture. He, he bore your sins in his body on, on the tree. When, when you think of the suffering of Jesus, see, it's not just an example that he sets for us. See, his suffering is more than just an example. In his suffering, he actually saves us, re redeems us. He rescues us from hell and eternity without God and everything that is good. And he brings us, he, he reconciles us to God and everything that is good. So, so that now we actually have, in verse 25, a good shepherd and overseer of our souls. So maybe we'll just end with a question today. Um, it, let's just say that today is your scheduled time to meet God. Can, can you hold your head up high in that moment? And, and listen, if you're depending on your good works to do that, your good attendance, your good Bible study, your good parenting, your good, you're just kind of a moral man, you're kind of a moral, if you're depending on your good works to do that, you'll never make it. Your head will be low. But when we trust and treasure Jesus, here's the good news of the gospel, that his sinlessness is transferred over to us. So, so, so that now when we stand before God, when we trust and treasure him, put our faith in him, God doesn't look at us and our sin. He looks at Jesus and his perfection. And if you're a Christian in the room, then here's my prayer for you today, that the unjust suffering of Jesus would begin to melt your heart. Any resistance that is there, it would begin to melt that. See, before we get to the commands next week of, of living out this unjust suffering, how to endure it patiently and graciously and kindly, before we get to that, you've got to see that this Jesus, your Savior, has suffered unjustly for you. You've got to let that melt some resistance in you. You've got to let that melt just the, the, the hard layers of your heart. And when that happens, then we can actually live in the commands that we'll talk about next week, right? Let's pray together. I'm going to let you just sit under that for a few minutes as we close up today. And if you are a Christian in the room, you have trusted Jesus, you've treasured him above all things. God has saved you, he's redeemed you, he's brought you into the family. Here's what I want to just pray for you as we, as we finish. that that word suffer and revile in, in First Peter, 
that those would be more than just words. That, that God might gift you an imagination right now to see those things and to hear those things. And that when you see and you hear that unjust suffering that Jesus endured, that it would enliven you. That it would break all barriers to resistance. It would make your heart come alive knowing that he suffered for you, that, that he took the penalty for you, that, that all the suffering he endured, that that should have been given to you. That, that apart from Jesus, that the suffering, physical pain that he endured, it, it doesn't compare to the spiritual reality of the wrath of God that would be coming for you. That, that we would have a sense of Jesus suffered on my behalf in my place. That Jesus died for me, the penalty of my sin, to break the power of sin in my life. That there would be an active awareness. There would be vivid imagery of that. And for those in the rooms that are not, not Christians, you're, you're kind of on the peripheral edge, kind of kicking the tires on this thing, that you would hear the invitation that's, that's in this. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. That when you put your faith in Jesus, you trust him above all things, holding up your life to him and saying, God, I am yours. And you treasure him above all things. At that moment, God saves you. And that bearing of sins, that actually becomes your sins. In that moment when you trust him, the sins that he bore are your sins. That he, the sinless one, now stands in your place. And so there's a, there's a great invitation in this. But if you're kicking the tires, maybe this would be a great day for you to say, I'm done kicking and I, now I, I'm trusting. God, God, will you save me? So God, I want to pray for our brothers and sisters in the room. God, that this might be a morning as we just kind of painted on the backdrop of 1 Peter chapter 2, 18 through 25, that this would be a morning that, you, that maybe just gently today you would be preparing our hearts for what's sure to come for all of us in the future, this unjust suffering, just the effects of living in a fallen world. And God, that, that you would give us vivid imagery of how your sinless son, Jesus, has suffered on our behalf unjustly. So God, God will you do that? God, but your spirit, will you massage that deep into us? God, God, might you imprint these steps of Jesus deep into our heart? Will you give us a tangible picture of that? And God, might you use that to stir up in us incredible affection for you? May we get to see a picture of your gracious love to us, of your good mercy to us. And God, may that make us come alive to you. God, will that melt some resistance to you in the room? So God, by your spirit, would you be gracious and do that today? It is in your good name that we pray.
let you stand up. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.